This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Rachel Maddow Show, A Best of the Left Activism Update, The Onion Radio News, The Majority Report, J.A. Meyerson Reporting for Citizen Radio, Counterspin, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Progressive, and a performance by Taylor Molly. The experts are wrong. On what? On everything. The experts have their heads up their ass. So far, they don't even know it's their ass. They'll tell you it's just a dark, smelly cave. In the book Thinking Fast and Slow, Nobel laureate Dan Kahneman talks about the cognitive flaw called illusion of validity, in which experts trust their own judgment even when shown they're often wrong. Wealth advisors, for example, have been proven to do no better than random chance. And the scariest part is that our trust of experts does not decrease even when facts prove that they're morons. I think this might be one of the ways that man is different from most other animals. If you told a group of elephants that one elephant was an expert at finding water and then he failed again and again, they would be like, you, he sucks. I don't care where he went to school. Whereas mankind will go back to the same financial advisors, the same economists, the same leaders, time and time again, failure after failure. We would even go back to a restaurant despite thinking the food tasted like burnt hair sprinkled over less burnt hair. All you'd have to do is tell us that the chef trained under Wolfgang Puck or whoever the f- and we would tell our friends the pasta tasted like happiness smothered in whipped cream topped with angel or whatever you're into. Many of the experts are only interested in supporting the system that declared them an expert. That's the funny thing about getting to the top of the heap. Very few get there and then turn around and say the system is full of How many U.S. gold medalists win and then turn around and say, Hey, I'm only here because I live in a wealthy society that gave me the time and freedom to spend all day, every day, practicing throwing this ball really far. Having me compete against nations where people spend their day dodging death and working in sweatshops is as fair as Kim Kardashian competing with a child soldier in a wine tasting. And the illusion of validity is one reason humanity is speeding toward the ecological cliff. Obama, like other presidents, surrounds himself with economic advisors from Goldman Sachs and military advisors from the military. Our economy is run by people who only know how to suck profit out of every living thing. They know as much about helping someone as Mitt Romney knows about doing yard work or about helping someone. And our decisions on war are made by people who only know how to kill and destroy. It would be like staffing the U.S. Department of Music with only Spice Girls. Sure, they sold a lot of albums and won a lot of awards, but I feel like music policy should be set by eh, musicians. While we're at it, let's take the top five competitive eaters in the world and put them in charge of how to feed the starving. Yes, they are award-winning experts on eating, but they don't know a thing about feeding people. Experts are experts on the status quo. Don't ask them how to change the world.
The co-chair of the fundraising team for Mitt Romney in the state of Florida uh, is the chief executive of this, uh, Full Sail University. And the reason I said the Mitt Romney Campaign Florida fundraising co-chair is the chief executive of Full Scale University and not, say, the president of the school uh, is because Full Scale University is a business. It is a for-profit institution. And when Mitt Romney gets asked policy questions about higher education, he often brings up for-profit colleges and uh, as his proposed solution. Specifically, he often brings up Full Sale University. Is that a specific school? That it happens to be run by his fundraising co-chair. I was at a, a, a place in Florida called Full Sail University. They, they provide the, their, a four-year degree uh, for people in the entertainment world, uh, uh, production, media, broadcast, and so forth. I mean, they, they hold down the cost of their education by recognizing they, they're competing. Full Sail University, cited by Mr. Romney, is an example of how to hold down the cost of education. It costs $81,000 to do a 21-month program in video game art at Full Sail University. That's what Mitt Romney says is going to save America from high education costs. But it is run by Mr. Romney's Florida fundraising co-chair, so that part of its finances is definitely looking good for America. Beyond just the CEO being a major Romney fundraiser, it should also be noted that Full Sail University is technically owned by a private equity fund. And the chairman of the private equity fund is also a major Mitt Romney donor. When the New York Times reported in this uh, front page story earlier this year on Mr. Romney's financial ties to the for-profit college industry that he promotes as a candidate, uh, they also noted that for that video game art degree program, the one that costs $81,000, the on-time graduation rate is 14%. The total graduation rate is only 38%. But whether or not you actually graduate, the median debt taken on by students to pay for that program is $59,000. This is a lot of things, but a solution to the high cost of higher education? It is not one of those things. Here's another detail. In June of this year, just a couple of months ago, the website GIBill.com had to be handed over to the federal government. It turns out that GIBill.com had been bought by a marketing company in California. It looked like an official government portal, maybe even a military website, where you might go to figure out how to apply for and use your GI Bill benefits if you are a veteran. But really, this marketing firm that owned GIBill.com was just capturing the data that unsuspecting veterans entered into that website looking for official help, and then they were selling that data to for-profit colleges. The marketing company settled in an agreement with multiple states. They paid a multi-million dollar fine, and they agreed to hand over the website. So now when you go to GIBill.com, it kicks you over eventually to the real VA website about your real benefits, which should not result in a million high-pressure tactic phone calls from for-profit universities trying to get you to use up all your benefits, paying for something like an $81,000 video game art program that has a 14% graduation rate. Mitt Romney as a presidential candidate is not just tied to Full Sail University, though. He has generally been a big proponent of this industry. He's going to be speaking at another for-profit college this weekend in North Carolina. And Mr. Romney plating his trough with this industry and doing so very aggressively has had the helpful political effect of putting a real spotlight on this incredibly profitable industry and how much we are all paying them to become so profitable. This past month, Tom Harkin and the Education Committee in the Senate released a report on the for-profit college industry that was the product of a two-year investigation. The report was not good. For-profit colleges charge exorbitant tuition 
and often provide an inferior education while experiencing sky-high dropout rates, how are they able to recruit a steady stream of new students? The answer is that for-profit colleges are what I would call a marketing machine. Whether or not you graduate, whether or not your degree is worth anything in terms of getting you a job, perhaps in the video game art field, uh, whether or not you are able to ever repay the loans that you took out to be able to pay for these expensive programs, the business model of of the for-profit school industry is to market to you aggressively, to get you to sign up, to then get you to take out loans to pay your tuition to the school, and then to cash those loan checks. They get paid and you owe the money to whoever gave you the loan. And more often than not, the entity that gave you the loan is the federal government. In the 2009 school year, for-profit schools got paid $32 billion in federal money. One out of every $4 the education department put out in student aid went to a for-profit school. This is students taking out federally supported student loans to pay these schools The reason we do that is because there's supposed to be a national public interest in helping Americans get a valuable college education. But the more loans a student can take out, the more money these students can potentially soak out of them. The more eligible you are as a student for loans, the more beautiful you are as a marketing target for these schools. And so if you are a post-9-11 veteran eligible for the post-9-11 GI Bill, for these schools, you are a very, very beautiful target indeed. Quote, since the post-9-11 GI Bill took effect almost exactly three years ago right now, eight of the ten colleges collecting the most money from the new GI Bill, eight of the ten, have been for-profit schools. As taxpayers, we are paying for veterans' higher education. That's what the GI Bill means. We have a national interest in doing that. And these for-profit schools are marketing aggressively to veterans so that our federal taxpayer money is going to them, to the for-profit schools. It's $4,600 to pay for a veteran to go to public school. It's more than $10,000 for that same veteran to go to a for-profit school. And at that for-profit school, what we get for our extra money is a lower graduation rate and a higher student loan default rate and a whole lot of profit to make sure these marketing machines are very, very, very well politically connected. Joining us now is Tom Tarantino. He's the chief policy officer for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, which, full disclosure, uh, is a nonpartisan organization that I personally support. Uh, Mr. Tarantino is an Iraq war vet who served 10 years in the U.S. Army. Uh, Tom, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Uh, Is it your experience as a veteran and and working with vets at IAVA uh, that post-9-11 veterans are specifically being targeted by by for-profit schools? They're absolutely being targeted by for-profit schools, and this is largely because of regulatory loopholes that were created before the GI Bill actually existed that classify the GI Bill as private funding. Uh, You know, we actually have controls on for-profit schools so that they don't abuse the system, so they actually have some element of free market control that says we can have 90% of your revenue can come from the federal government, but 10% actually has to come from customers who want to buy your product. In terms of business, it's kind of the best deal going. Uh, But because of a loophole, that 10%, the GI Bill falls in that 10% of private dollars. And so do DOD tuition assistance benefits, and so do benefits for military spouses. So that means for every veteran or military member that a for-profit school can recruit, that's nine more people on federal financial aid, equaling about $125,000 in new revenue per veteran. That is a huge incentive 
uh, to line their pockets with benefits instead of providing the service that they're supposed to be providing. In terms of the service that they are providing, though, I mean, the, the rejoinder from these schools is that veterans are signing up in hugely disproportionate numbers for for-profit schools because it is a good deal, because that's a, it's a good way to get an education, because it meets uh, the needs of, of military families uh, and the constraints imposed by, having, by being a veteran or by being in the military. What about that argument from them? Well, there is a little bit of something to that, but the reality is when 40% of all of your, uh, of all of your revenue is spent on marketing and recruiting and it's laser targeted at the military and at veterans benefits. You know, when I was a young officer and I was getting my in-brief on my education benefits, it wasn't telling me about how much I could use or where could I go to college. It was a for-profit school marketing directly to me saying I can go get this master's degree from this for-profit college. They have unprecedented access. And so it's very hard for veterans to make a determination as to what schools they can go to. I can find out how much every single piece of sushi within 10 miles of me costs using my phone, but I have no way to figure out how to compare schools. There is no Yelp for higher education, and that lack of transparency is causing problems with veterans who are looking around and trying to figure out what schools best fit their needs. Sometimes it is an online college. There actually are very good for-profit colleges, but they're being drowned out by these large behemoths that are just looking to line their pockets with benefits. Well, President Obama signed an executive order back in April that was aimed at at least part of this problem. It was aimed at protecting vets and, and veterans' families from deceptive recruiting, overly aggressive recruiting by these schools. Did that, did that help at all? Uh, I think it is going to help. It actually did three very important things. It actually told all schools that they need to report some basic consumer information metrics. There's a lot of information coming out of the Department of Education, but it's really hard to sift through, and it actually doesn't help consumers very much. Uh, it also trademarks the phrase GI Bill, so that these marketing websites and, and for-profit schools who want to create these deceptive marketing websites, uh, they can't use the phrase GI Bill. That, that, that's actually going to be copyrighted protected. And most importantly, it allows veterans who are scammed by for-profit schools some way to not just comply plane, but to actually get some sort of redress. Welcome to a Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. We've talked at length on this show about the 1% and all the ways they are out of touch with everyday people. But what's often neglected in this discourse are the tools the 1% use to continually oppress the 99% majority. Today I'm going to bring to your attention their latest weapon that has the potential to cause catastrophic damage for you, your digital rights, and the digital divide. If you haven't already heard about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, please take note. The TPP, Fair Trade Agreement, is a stealthy policy being pressed by corporate America. Like ACTA, the TPP is being negotiated in secret and on a fast timetable. We don't know what's in the TPP IP chapter or even what the U.S. Trade Representative is pushing for in this agreement. 
At this moment, closed-door talks are ongoing between the U.S. and eight other countries, including Australia, Brunei, Chile, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, Malaysia, and Vietnam, with other countries such as Canada, Mexico, Japan, and China in discussion to potentially join later. Six hundred corporate advisors have access to the text, while the public, members of Congress, journalists, and civil society are excluded. Entertainment industry executives who are members of the Industry Trade Advisory Committee will likely get to see the agreement drafts again, but the rest of us will be kept in the dark unless we speak up now. And, if the 1% have their way, larger aspects of this agreement would offshore millions of American jobs, free the banksters from oversight, decrease access to medicine, flood the U.S. with unsafe food and products, and empower corporations to attack our environmental and health safeguards. The U.S. is pushing SOPA and ACTA-like policies onto the rest of the world, forcing them to sacrifice free speech and privacy in exchange for access to commodity markets like tobacco and textiles. Using TPP, America is trying to export the worst parts of its intellectual property law. Copyright owners can demand your domain or have your computer seized if it's found to be, quote, connected to infringing activity, whether you actually participated or not. You can even go to jail. Infringement claims under TPP restrict your economic, property, and personal freedoms. So please go to EFF.org slash issues slash TPP for more information and to take action. The EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and their work involves defending your rights in the digital world. So join EFF and more than 25,000 others in sending a message to Congress members to demand an end to these secret backdoor negotiations. Don't let them trade away your internet freedoms. Speak out against this Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. This has been a Best of the Left Activism Update. For more information about the link in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. It's the Onion Radio News. The nation's substitute teachers would like to know who threw that. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Frustrated and no longer fooling around, the nation's substitute teachers publicly demanded today to know the identity of the student who threw that. Paula Jenkins is president of the National Association of Substitute Teachers. No one, and I mean no one, is leaving until we get to the bottom of this. Do you hear me? If the perpetrator who threw that is not revealed within the next three seconds, the substitutes have threatened to leave the nation's regular teacher a scathing report detailing the misbehavior of U.S. students while they were away. Doyle Redland from the Onion Radio We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. There's something wild about you, child, that's so contagious. Let's be outrageous, let's misbehave. When Adam won Eve's hand, he wouldn't stand for teasing. He didn't care about those apples out of season. They say the spring means just one thing to little 
Representative Roscoe Bartlett. Do we even need to say any more? Roscoe Bartlett was speaking at Maryland's Allegheny College on Wednesday. And he was talking about government loans for students, I guess, being unconstitutional for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, and I guess maybe I should have dug into this more. But uh, I think you'll understand when I when we play this audio, uh, this clip of him explaining why we shouldn't have go- uh, constitution- uh, loans, I figure, you know what, uh, why do I need to wade into this crazy? <clears throat> Federal spending on education is clearly constitutional. Um, and we know that rising costs are a major reason why uh, nearly half of American college students drop out. Now, we've got over a trillion dollar debt student loan in this country. I personally think that we should end student loan programs and ensure that we have free college tuition in every state in the uh, country. And I would stop the federal loan, uh, student loan program the day after we make that pronouncement. But I don't think the problem is the same as Representative Roscoe Bartlett does. Let's hear his explanation. Not that it's not a good idea to give students loans. It certainly is a good idea to give them loans. But if you can ignore the Constitution to do something good today, tomorrow you will be ignoring the Constitution to do something bad. You could. There are more people in our in America today of German ancestry than any other in English. The Holocaust occurred in Germany. How in the heck could that happen? And when you start down the wrong road, it can be a very slippery slope. So his argument is that because in his twisted mind he thinks that student loans are unconstitutional, if you do something uh, unconstitutional for something good, you can end up doing stuff that is unconstitutional that's bad. I agree with that. Student loans, I don't think, are a slippery slope to the Holocaust. I'm fairly convinced of that. In fact, I am more sure of that than anything beyond the fact that I am sitting here saying these words. In fact, I think there's more question as to whether or not I'm even saying these words than the fact that student loans are going to lead to a Holocaust.
Davis, a university town nestled amidst the rolling orchards of California's Central Valley, the food co-op, the weekly performer circle at the community center, the variety of Froyo establishments, Davis, where so many people ride bicycles that the United States Bicycling Hall of Fame is found on Third Street. Davis is no longer the quiet town it once was. Now Davis residents are being stalked by a menace that must be rooted out at all cost. If these 12 criminals aren't in prison soon, they could destroy Davis forever. Each person has the same charges. There's 21 total counts for each person. So each person has 20 counts of 647C, which is obstructing... Uh, willfully and maliciously obstructing a public thoroughfare, and one count of conspiracy to commit a misdemeanor, and that being the, obstruct, the obstruction of a, of a thoroughfare. So essentially, as I like to phrase it, 20 counts of sitting and one count of conspiracy to sit. <laughs> I'm speaking with UC Davis professor Joshua Clover, one of the accused, in a Pete's Coffee in Oakland. So those are the total charges. Each of them comes with possibility of six months in jail, except for the conspiracy, which comes with a possible year in jail, and those can be stacked, as they say. So if one is committed of all 21, that would be 11 years in jail. And then there's a request for a million dollars restitution total, I guess, divided among the 12 of us. What public thoroughfare was so important that the 12 people accused of blocking it could face up to 11 years in jail apiece and a million dollars total? In front of a bank. Where else? The so-called Davis Dozen, 11 students and Professor Clover, stand accused of blockading the U.S. bank branch on campus. The bank closed up shop and sued the school for not removing the blockaders. The school countersued the bank for a closing up shop and breach of contract. Students and faculty got slapped with criminal charges. The whole thing occurred during this past year's wave of protests throughout the UC system over tuition hikes. You may recall how, on November 9th, a group at UC Berkeley attempted to occupy a small space to the side of an administration building and were beaten and arrested by riot police wielding clubs. And how a week later, some Davis student activists professing solidarity with the Berkeley protesters occupied a small portion of the quad and were told to leave. And how when they refused, they caught what one might call hella pepper spray to the face. Aaron Beatty, the blogger and tweeter known as Zunguzungu, is a graduate student at Berkeley and has dug through the assorted What Officially Went Wrong reports produced in the wake of these incidents. The reports are supposedly a form of accountability, but as Beatty has pointed out, have almost entirely been ignored and produced no modification to procedure. Ironically, I'm talking to him here at UC Berkeley's Free Speech Movement Cafe. What happened at Davis happened the week after what happened at Berkeley. Right. Because, and, you know, the thing at Berkeley they were told they couldn't use pepper spray, so they used their clubs. <laughs> the times, yeah. At Davis, they were told they couldn't use clubs because of what had happened at Berkeley, and then, you know, John Pike runs wild with pepper spray, right? Like, the, the, there's, there's a relationship between the two that are... Um, you know, and, like, the thing that happened here was... You know, they were talking all about how, like, Occupy Oakland might come 
to the Berkeley campus, which is, I mean, that's, sure, that could happen, that did happen. Um, it makes no sense to be worried about that at, in, in Davis, like, Occupy Sacramento, <laughs> 20 of them are going to come, you know, like, overrun the camp, like, what is the threat? But, it, but because they're mapping what happened on at Berkeley onto what's happening at Davis, and like the, you see that in the reports, right? Like they're actually kind of saying, well, this happened at, at Berkeley, so therefore we'll respond this way at Davis. Beatty was moved to remark upon how routine and predictable these crackdowns are. I can say, having, having seen police run wild on Berkeley students four times since I've been here, um, Every time, it, it's, it's a similar dynamic where, like, there's a sort of mild group of, of student protesters maybe doing something relatively mild. The police enter to solve it using precise force, and everybody flips the fuck out because it's insane. You know, and, and, then, and then it just escalates until the moment when the police leave. The model comes from careful planning. A UC police chief, Santa Barbara's Dustin Olson, recently wrote the manual on this. His article, entitled Essential Ingredients to Working with Campus Protests and Demonstrations, was published in Campus Law Enforcement Journal, which would appear to be a thing that exists. In it, Olson builds on the earlier work of UC Berkeley's John Searle, whose 1971 The Campus War wrote of the free speech movement as a terrifying battle between an unprepared chancellor's office and an organized student opposition. Searle recalls feeling depressed beholding this friendly assemblage of self-effacing vice chancellors, key-punch operators, and mild-mannered secretaries assembled to do battle against the largest, best-organized, and most competently-led radical student army in the history of the country. It is no surprise where this way of thinking has taken so many campus police forces. To me, the, the underlying problem is simply that you treat protest and civil disobedience as a, as a, as a criminal problem and what that then signifies is it's like a fire you have to put out you know like there, there is no and this goes back actually like this goes back to the experience of the 60s and, and like what John Searle takes from, from all of that and his book that he writes while he's working in the chancellor's office you know like this sense that student protest is a senseless kind of upsurge of like primitive id that's just going to happen and so the way you deal with it is never you you never engage with with the protesters or the occupiers as political subjects like you never engage with them as people you could have a conversation with people who might have a legitimate grievance you treat them as you know a, a problem to be solved by a precise use of force and so like it's going to that's gonna. That situation is gonna explode in a different way each time. Like it'll be clubs, and then it'll be pepper spray, and you know, next time it'll be something else, right? Or now it's lawsuits, right? Or now it's criminal charges. Evan Buswell, one of the Davis dozen facing the criminal charges Beatty mentioned, agrees about the essential unwillingness of administrators to deal with student protesters evenly. According to Buswell, the tactics available to police in putting down backlash aren't the point. The point is that putting down the backlash is part and parcel of the university's restructuring, from public good to private investment. Here he is talking to me in a coffee shop in Davis. You can't look at the protesters as having started something by protesting, you know, I mean, like, that's not the beginning of the conflict. The beginning of the conflict are the austerity measures, which, when they put those in place, like, they know there's going to be resistance, and they know that, like, they have to do their best to stamp down the resistance in order to be able to put these things in place. Like, that's that's the entire thing of it. It's, it's not a matter of, like, you know, 
what what is the best reaction they can have. Uh, they've already planned for the reaction before the protest is even occurring. So if the crackdowns are just one small piece of public universities' long-term plan, let's take one step back to the long-term plan. Ideally, what distinguishes public universities from private universities is that public universities are funded by the public, and private universities are funded privately, with tuition paid by students. Increasingly, at the University of California, the funding is coming from tuition. Why are universities making this shift from publicly funded to privately funded? In other words, why are tuitions rising? The answer that conventional wisdom asses on television will offer is that budget cuts are eating away at the funds available for public education. If they're Democrats, they will say these cuts are bad, and if they're Republicans, they will say these cuts are good. But they'll both agree that it's about these cuts. As always, the answer is not so simple. Predictably, the budget crisis here is really an excuse for those in charge to get more of what they want, because the UC Board of Regents doesn't actually want the public funding. Public education funding comes with pesky directions to put the money toward boring things like public education. But the regents aren't interested in funding public education; they're interested in funding high-budget construction projects. Public money. Can't go to that. Only private money can. Specifically, bonds. High-budget construction projects are financed mostly by bonds. Take, for instance, the Meyer and Renee Luskin Conference and Guest Center at UCLA. The UC Board of Regents voted unanimously this summer to fund it. It will house 25,000 square feet of meeting space, 250 guest rooms, and a new parking garage. Fancy, luxurious. Meyer and Renee Luskin get to have their name on this conference and guest center because they gave 40 million dollars to build the thing. But it's going to cost a lot more than 40 million dollars to build, like 112 million more dollars. And those dollars are all coming from bonds. Now, the bond market is a very confusing place that I know barely anything about. But I do know that if you're in an extreme financial emergency, which the regents declared the UC system officially in, and you're having to lay off teachers and eliminate classes and raise tuitions, it should be hard for you to sell your bonds. They should be worth shit. You're not a solid investment. You're in an extreme financial emergency, and yet Fitch keeps rating UC bonds at things like AA+, which, as bond ratings go, doesn't seem to warn of extreme financial emergency. In order to get such good bond ratings in the midst of an extreme financial emergency, UC has to promise some pretty solid collateral. It has to have some assets on reserve that, should the extreme financial emergency cause them to default on the bond, they can offer the big banks. What do they pledge? Future tuition hikes. These tuition hikes, in other words, aren't the product of a budget crisis. They are promises to Wall Street being kept. They pledged your tuition to Wall Street. Bob Meester titled his open letter to UC students. Meester is the president of the Council of UC Faculty Associations and a professor of political and social thought at UC Santa Cruz. Your tuition, he wrote, is UC's number one source of revenue to pay back bonds ahead of new earnings from bond-funded projects, which do not even come in second.
The bond interest UC now pays will be $300 million this year and is projected to go way up as the UC greatly increases the private capital it raises through tuition-backed bonds over the next decade. So future students are paying for today's students' buildings, and the banks are standing above the whole affair with their money vacuums on full blast. This is very close to the objection Joshua Clover, the Davis professor, had to the erstwhile partnership between UC Davis and U.S. Bank. The $100,000 or whatever it is that the university gets from the bank every year, where do they think that money comes from? The bank doesn't literally make money. They don't have a printing press. They get that money from only one source, which is the students. They get it from money they successfully get from students for, let's say, uh, fees, interest rates, um, penalty charges, and so on. If the money's going to come from students to fund the university, why have the bank sitting in the middle and taking a share of it? Why not just say, students, give us all 20, each, each 20 more dollars a year, and we'll spend it for the good of the university. And of course, students would complain about that. Um, as they should, the fees are already too high, but the students aren't being saved any money by the bank's intervention. It's simply costing them more money. The, the money the bank gives to the university, they get from the students, they sit in the middle of the transaction, and they take a cut because they're a profit-making institution. So the defense that the university is getting money seemingly out of nowhere from banks to universities is an absolute ludicrous fallacy. Of course, they don't really mean future tuition, because tuition increasingly isn't coming straight from students to schools. It's coming from the banks, which is where tuition actually goes in the form of paying back student debt. If this all seems like a self-reinforcing system capable of producing a credit bubble, that's because it is, and the bubble is in student debt. Evan Buswell of the Davis Dozen is a PhD candidate in cultural studies and focusing on debt. He gives us a lay of the land. The student loan market is functions mostly simply to produce debt, um, and often, you know, with with increasing numbers of people uh, going to school because they're unable to find any sort of job uh, outside of school, it's essentially a process of accepting debt because there's no other way to stay alive. My friend Sarah Jaffe, an editor at Alternet who's written a lot about student debt, told me over the phone how everyone's doing with the whole debt we were forced to take on situation. You have people graduating from college, waiting tables, and they're supposed to be paying $400 a month on their student loan, and they just can't do it. So there's hundreds of thousands of people right now in default on their student loans because they just can't pay it with the jobs that actually exist right now. Hundreds of thousands of people unable to pay back their debts to the bank? That's what just happened with mortgages in the last financial crash. Our position as debtors is just as proxies in an attempt to create toxic assets and sell them to other people. I mean, we are essentially toxic assets as students. Um, that's what we are. Wait, issuing toxic debt and then selling it to other people? That happened with mortgages, too. Slabs are student loan asset-backed securities, and they are basically being traded the same way mortgage-backed securities are, right? In that you package a bunch of student loans and you sell them. Hold on. There's a secondary market of investors who have bought up packages of toxic assets and bid up the price of education? If they've taken out credit default swaps on their slabs, it's all in place for another crash and another bailout. Or is it? Jaffe says the bailout is built into the deal. The government basically guarantees loans that private lenders make, and the government can pursue you for life. 
you cannot discharge them in bankruptcy. They can garnish your Social Security. And it's not a random collection agency the government sends after you. Some of these collection agencies are owned by the very same big banks. So J.P. Morgan could essentially sell you your student loan, and then you default on your student loan. They get paid back by the government, and then they get paid their collection agency that they own is getting paid by the government to collect the debt from you. You're fucked by a bank everywhere you look. Want to go to a state college? Your tuition is rising in order for the regents to service their construction bonds by paying money to banks. In order to pay the tuition, you have to take on debts that will keep you paying money to banks for the rest of your life. Default on your student loans? The government pays money to the banks both to service the debt and to bully and harass you for the money. This is a massive profit-making machine. And if you dare even to sit in front of one bank, you stand to be thrown in jail for over a decade. I think the, the university's position is that if they didn't bring uh, excessive charges against us, then they could be legally seen as in breach of contract with U.S. Bank. With U.S. Bank. And, um, I mean, like, I think that just, that just points out to what a ridiculous situation it is to have a bank as your partner on campus that you have to basically, like, you know, acquiesce to the whims of the bank um, against your own students. With all the pressure to get the highest possible return on their investment in college, the student protesters have shrunken away from the struggle, according to Aaron Beatty, at least until the next spike in anger and compassion inevitably flares up. They've raised the shit out of tuition since I've been here. They raised it 83% that one semester. Um, if, if the tax thing doesn't pass, they'll raise it another 20%. And, and that, that'll be big numbers because we're already pretty high. Um, but, like, every time that happens, it's like, it just happens and you just suck it up and take it. And then the next time it happens, it's a little harder to be upset about it. I have a hard time seeing how this all shakes out without some totally radical change. Neither, apparently, do Sarah Jaffe or Joshua Clover. Without sort of changing the whole system, it, I, you know, I don't know where it goes. I think that banks in general are very, very bad for... for public education and private education in the form in the form that they currently exist. And I think that the existence of education as a social good and the existence of banks need to be absolutely disentangled. And in fact, I basically think there shouldn't be banks. Aaron Beatty sees the student movement such as it has been so far as a midpoint on the way to a much more fulsome political commitment. Students and activists and, and kind of for public education people in general are struggling to work out the critique simultaneous with a very inarticulate no. <laughs> I submit the following critique for consideration. In capitalism, there are three relationships that people have to wealth. The first, the proletariat, is made up of workers whose labor generates value. The mechanic, the farmer, the flight attendant, the sales associate. This group is by far most people. The second group, the bourgeoisie, is made up of owners who capture that value in the form of profits. The CEO, the member of the corporate board of directors, the private equity baron. This is a tiny group of people. The last group, the petit bourgeoisie, is made up of managers who facilitate the whole process. The professional class, the doctor, the judge, the professor. Basically the people whose traditional work uniform is a robe. 
After the Great Depression, the United States invented a new class called the middle class. Where did they find all of the people to make up the middle class? In the working class. There was no such thing as a brand new middle class. It was just the working class. But this working class was elevated above working class conditions by the New Deal, the GI Bill, the Marshall Plan in Europe, and so forth. This so-called middle class labored in the hope that they could forever ride upward on the perpetually rising wave of production and consumption we are encouraged to call the American dream. College was an essential part of this American dream and became a staple of the life this middle class felt entitled to as part of the whole being a middle class and not a working class deal. But in traditional pre-Great Depression capitalism, college was not a right of the working class. It was a luxury for the cultivation of the ownership class and their managers, a tradition which had previously been the case under feudalism as well. So the middle class being allowed to go to college en masse was a big step up from those families' previous working class life. The thing about that perpetually rising wave of production and consumption that we are encouraged to call the American dream is that it turns out to act just like all other waves, by crashing. In the digital age in which American workers have increased their productivity hugely with no increase to their real wages, the so-called middle class has only been able to keep up the incredible consumption schedule it is used to by taking on a shit ton of debt. We go into debt to buy the home that working class people aren't traditionally entitled to. We go into debt to buy the health care that working class people aren't traditionally entitled to. And we go into debt to buy the education that working class people aren't traditionally entitled to. So today, the middle class is simply the working class plus debt. The privatization of public universities is merely a return to the natural, harmonious capitalist order in which college is a privilege of wealth and all of the rest of us just go out and work ourselves to death for the benefit of the ownership class. I put it to you that the way to meet the need of the working class isn't artificial elevation to middle class status on a mountain of debt, but cutting out the ownership class who has made debt peons of us all. We are not a middle class. We are workers. There is nothing shameful about being a worker. There is only shame in consenting to rich people's theft of our work. We can educate each other, thanks very much, without all their alleged help. J.A. Meyerson, Citizen Radio. Well, common sense, teach me everything I need to know. What's worth fighting for? Just let go Common sense Teach me what it means To be alive What to make Of all this time Time, time Why it seems That I am bound To love someone Someone who does not know What it means To love Un 
it comes to coverage of teachers and their unions, anything goes in the corporate media. On September 11th, New York Times columnist Joe Nocera explained while on the one hand the corporate education reform movement doesn't have all the answers, quote, on the other hand, the status quo, which is what the Chicago teachers want, is clearly unacceptable. In Chicago, about 60% of public school students graduate from high school, close quote. A Washington Post editorial likewise accused the teachers of fighting to preserve the status quo and its low graduation rates because they oppose corporate reforms, reforms, they tell us, that are much like those championed by the White House. So Chicago teachers want no change in their school system? Of course, anyone who so much as glanced at the Chicago Teachers Union website could see these teachers actually want quite a bit to change. Smaller classes, more support staff, the closing of funding gaps between schools. To suggest that what teachers want is to maintain low graduation rates is absurd and offensive. In addition to an editorial attacking the union, the Washington Post also ran an op-ed by Charles Lane, who angrily argued against the union's demands based on the fact that Chicago teachers make much more than the largely impoverished families whose children they teach. Quote, I cannot describe the moral repugnance of this strike by aggrieved middle-class professionals against the aspiring poor. Close quote. Yes, teachers are against the poor. And in case you couldn't tell from my inflection, Lane put the word professionals inside quotation marks. Lane doesn't mention if he thinks journalists located in big cities with high poverty rates are grossly overpaid. But then, journalists aren't teachers. Has thugs. Since when have you seen teachers treated like, in the words of a GOP congressman, thugs? The teachers union in Chicago decided to fight back, and by so doing, beat back one of the most repressive anti-teacher contracts in modern day history. There's but one objective in these efforts to beat down teachers unions. It's to open the door wider to corporate control. This is a plot of both political parties because both political parties are owned by corporate interests and even in the face of this attack perhaps 80 percent of voting teachers will vote for obama's re-election proving once again that politics makes real strange bedfellows from imprisoned nation this is mumia abu jamal the world's locked up in your head you've been pouring in a concrete bed your habits are so fried You don't realize you're fried You're so fried To find someone you love you Gotta be someone you love To find someone you love you Gotta be someone you love
it looks like there's going to be a settlement in the Chicago teachers' strike, which I'm really grateful for, not only for the kids and their parents, but for the teachers, too, who valiantly hit the picket lines to stand up for public education, only to be vilified in the national press. What Rahm Emanuel was trying to do was to further the so-called reform agenda, which is nothing of the sort. The goal of this push is to open the school doors to private companies and to turn our schools into test-taking factories that drill the dull in the kids. The mania for test-taking, which both George W. Bush and Barack Obama have signed on to, reduces the curriculum into rote lessons about how to fill in little circles with a number two pencil. The Chicago Teachers Union has done us all a favor by rebelling against this stultifying approach. The solution to our education problems isn't more standardized tests and more charter schools. Part of the solution is smaller class sizes and decent facilities. In Chicago, 100 schools lack playgrounds. 160 of them have no libraries at all. The other part of the solution is social. In Chicago, more than 80% of the kids come from families under the poverty line. Let's attack poverty, not teachers. Then and only then may every kid have a chance at our fabled equality of opportunity. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. the problem with teachers is what's a kid going to learn from someone who decided that his best option in life is to become a teacher. (laughs) He reminds the other dinner guests that, you know, it's true what they say about teachers. Those who can, do. And those who can't, teach. (laughs) I decide to bite my tongue instead of his and resist the urge to remind the other dinner guests that it's also true what they say about lawyers. Because we're eating, after all, and this is supposed to be polite conversation. I mean, you're a teacher, Taylor. Come on, be honest. What do you make? And I wish he hadn't done that. Asked me to be honest. Because you see, I have this little policy about honesty and ass-kicking, which is, if you ask for it, then I have to let you have it. You want to know what I make? I make kids work harder than they ever thought they could. I can make a C-plus feel like a Congressional Medal of Honor, and I can make an A-minus feel like a slap in the face. How dare you waste my time with anything less than your very best. You want to know what I make? I make kids sit through 40 minutes of study hall in absolute silence. No, you may not work in groups. No, you cannot ask me a question, so put your hand down. Why won't I let you go to the bathroom? Because you're bored, and you don't really have to go, do you? (laughs) I make parents tremble in fear when I call home at around dinner time. 
Hi, this is Mr. Molly. I hope I haven't called at a bad time. I just wanted to talk to you about something that your son said today. He said, leave the kid alone. I still cry sometimes, don't you? And it was the noblest act of courage that I have ever seen. I make parents see their children for who they are and who they can be. You want to know what I make? I make kids wonder. I make them question. I make them criticize. I make them apologize and mean it. I make them write, write, write. And then I make them read. I make them spell definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful over and over and over again until they will never misspell either one of those words again. I make them show all their work in math class and then hide it on their final drafts in English. I make them realize that if you've got this, then you follow this. And if somebody ever tries to judge you based on what you make, you give them this. Here, let me break it down for you so you know what I say is true. Let me break it down for you so you know what I say is true. Teachers make a goddamn difference. Now what about you? Hi, Jay. It's Stacy from the Bay Area again. I'm calling back because you said you wanted some input on the women black Joe of New York issue. I really didn't intend to respond to Joe at all, since he seemed to miss the point altogether. Joe didn't listen, but instead he chose to disparage my mental status as paranoid. I, I think he said I had a warped perspective and inappropriate, uh, inappropriate perspective to reality. Well, that's disappointing, though I can't say it's all that unexpected. Uh, so why am I calling? What What is it unexpected, Jay, is that what I've heard you say. You have been pretty clear about um, having the, <laughs> the trifecta of white male straight privilege, and um, you've really made an effort to put yourself on the air trying hard to make uh, sense of what that means and solicit other people's input on, on that. And um, you've, you've been trying to see what other people have experienced beyond your lenses. When I heard Ilan describe something that he experienced in that vein, I was pretty thunderstruck. I'm, I'm not a young black man, but Ilan's monologue shed some light on that experience um, that just really, you know, got to me. He voiced his experience, and it was a voice that I very much understood for reasons that were uh, different, um, but also similar to his. And uh, listening to Ilan made me look beyond my own lenses. And I admire him for putting his, his perspective out there in a way that I could understand it. And I, I thought uh, that was kind of the, the point of, of the discussion. Ilan taught me something that day, uh, something that expanded my understanding and that, frankly, has made me a better person. So that was the point of my previous call. That's all. Thanks, Jay. Ta-ta. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. I thought I would share this with you about white privilege. Uh, about 50 years ago, I was inter interviewing for a, a job with a construction company as a uh, 
engineer, and the uh, they were sort of modern at the time, and they sent me to an industrial psychologist for a battery of tests and an interview to make sure I would fit in. And during the interview, the uh, interviewer asked me, "What are your advantages?" And I said to him, "I was born white." In the middle of the 20th century, to educated parents, I cannot think of a better a better advantage. And I just leave you with that thought because if it had been another color, it would be a completely different story. Thank you. Hi, Jay. This is Jay from New York.、Uh, I just heard the most inspirational version of your show or episode of your show. The one about. The last one here on September 11th, and、uh, all the people, all the men talking, and men and women talking about gay rights and the and the whole thing, and it was so beautiful. I mean, I just loved it. It, I, it made me feel so good to feel everybody. Well, you know, everybody encouraging people got to come out of the closet. I've seen so many lives ruined,、uh, and we all have. You all have too.、Uh, but it was just a, a wonderful episode. And the humor of it was sensational. I mean, the guys were just hilariously funny, and the women, frankly, I know how, how noble of me, but、uh, I just loved the issue. I loved the episode, and、uh, thank you for it. it. It really lifted my day tremendously. Just listening to it all the way in. Okay, thanks. Just thought I'd tell you that. Hey Jay, this is Joe from Pennsylvania. I just finished listening to the episode from September 11th on gay rights, and as I listened to the whole thing, the only thing I could think was, who cares? Not because gay rights are not important. Certainly, gay people should have all of the same rights as straight people, and shouldn't have to live in fear or be discriminated against. But just the whole idea that. It's 2012, and we're still having these conversations about is being gay a choice, and should they be able to marry? It's just completely ridiculous. And even as a straight person, I'm appalled that other people could have these same opinions that just discriminate against people over something that doesn't really mean anything to whether or not they're a good person or. Or anything that's just meaningless. It's just who they happen to be attracted to. So, I just wanted to share that with you and the listeners. That you know, I think that it's so ridiculous that it even matters to people, especially people who aren't gay, to try to get in gay people's way of just living a life the same as anybody else. So,、uh, thanks for the show. I love listening. So, I just wanted everybody to know. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Laurie from Washington State. I've just finished listening to your most recent episode、uh, posted on September 11th regarding homosexuality and religion, and I'm reminded of a television show that was on several years ago. It was a talk show、uh, called Jim Jay and Tammy Faye, and it was hosted by Jim Jay Bullock and Tammy Faye Baker. Jim Jay Bullock being、um, an actor. And uh, very uh, openly gay, and Penny Fay Baker being the ex-wife of the disgraced Reverend、uh, preacher Jim Baker. And Penny Fay at one point、uh, said, 
that a lot of people had been asking her, how can you be on TV with that guy? He's a homosexual, he's evil, he's bad, and you're supposed to be such a moral, upstanding Christian woman. And until that point, I had never been a huge Tammy K. Baker fan. I fell into the, you know, making fun of her makeup and the crying and the, you know, all those jokes to everybody else. But Tammy said something that really gave me pause. She looked straight into the camera and said, when people ask me how I can be on television with a gay man, I look at them and I say, well, I think it's time that Christians started to act like Christians. What do you think Jesus Christ would do? Do you think that he would turn his face away from this person or would he embrace and love the goodness that is in this man. And I have carried that with me ever since. And I, I'm not uh, of the Christian faith myself, but uh, when I hear of some of the, the stories, such as the ones that were in uh, this most recent episode of, of people's fear and people's bigotry and people's you know, outright hatred that they're putting out there, I'm always reminded of that simple phrase from Tammy Faye Baker, it's about time that Christians started to act like Christians. So I am hoping that some of uh, your other guests might take up that uh, that phrase and, and comment on it or uh, continue the dialogue. And uh, thank you for all that you do, and thank you for the show. And I'm looking forward to more fantastic episodes. And don't forget to vote. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I got thinking after the previous episode, which touched on the issue of fundamentalist Muslims, usually in the Middle East, who go a little crazy when depictions of Muhammad are made anywhere in the world, and they sometimes, uh, you know, lash out with violence. And, and so, you know, Libya and the particulars of that case notwithstanding, I just got to think about that whole concept in general. And it made me realize that my thoughts on that whole concept are uh, not solidified to say the least, put it that way. And so the question I want to pose and just get any kind of uh, perspectives that may be out there is – Basically, when you're in this situation, when you have, you know, crazy people ready to do crazy things based on irrational, uh, you know, what they consider to be a provocation, but no sane people should necessarily think that, um, is it then your moral obligation to not provoke them or, you know, because it's ridiculous, is it not your moral obligation to not provoke them in that way. And, you know, I have some thoughts on this, but they're not uh, solidified uh, or, or even really coherent. So I would be really interested to hear, you know, what other perspectives may be out there and see if I can't uh, piece together a, a better idea of my own of, of, you know, how I really feel about the situation. So if you're interested in uh, chiming in on that, the number again, 206-202-3410. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. That is absolutely how the show survives. Uh, you can do either of those things through the uh, donation and membership tabs at bestoftheleft.com. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips that you particularly like through your social networks. That can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought by itself, black and white, so took apart a picture that wasn't right. Bitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room, whose shadow bases the floor. 